actually, if you're going to do something that's right for your people, you need to care. And in order to care, you must have some kind of an emotional connection. It's that feelings, the emotional connection that is, that's what motivates people to want to make positive change. I think people are far more willing and committed to making positive change when they've kind of felt something, which is quite different to just being given statistics and numbers. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Dr. Ellen Nelson, a veteran of 10 years service in the Corps of Royal New Zealand Engineers, New Zealand Army. Ellen's operational service included time in Afghanistan, Antarctica and the Pacific. On leaving the Army, Ellen embarked on a career in logistics management and consultancy, but it was studying for an MBA that saw Ellen's passion for improving the well-being of women in the workplace come to the fore. A subsequent PhD focused on the experiences of working parents in the corporate sector and identified significant flaws with the current archaic construct of work. That research has now been used to make improvements in the New Zealand Army and other organisations around the world. Ellen is passionate about improving social outcomes with a focus on women and parents, while simultaneously focusing on improving organisational outcomes such as well-being, retention, productivity, leadership and business performance. What I loved about our conversation was the energy and passion that Ellen brings to whatever she is doing. The conversation was rich and we discuss an amazing example of her determination in a project she co-led with a volunteer team to evacuate 563 people from Afghanistan to New Zealand. This was following the collapse of the Afghan government in August 2021. A wonderful example of humanity and people supporting others in a time of need. Let's jump right in. Well, Ellen Nelson, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Martin. Well, the question I always ask my guests first up is, how did you end up joining the military or in your case, the New Zealand Army? Yeah, so the New Zealand Army had a campaign when I was about 10 years old, and it was the play on the words army and arm me. And it said things like arm me with friends, arm me with education, arm me with a career, and then it ended with army with a future. And as a 10-year-old girl, I thought, oh my goodness, the army has got everything I could possibly want in a career. I'm going to do that. Mm. And I did. And it did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get into some more of that and what Army did, I'm sure. You joined from New Zealand, but you came to Australia to start your military career. Yes, I was super lucky. So every year, New Zealand sends two people over to the Australian Defence Force Academy and then on to RMC Duntroon on effectively a scholarship exchange. And yeah, I was super lucky. I hit the jackpot and I did that. Mm. And... Who were those leadership heroes, influences on you growing up, either before your military career or perhaps early in your career? Oh, well, I guess beforehand, really my family, actually, both my mum and my dad and my little brother are huge influences on me, really significant role models. 
And then I guess when I got into the military, there was, yeah, I guess sort of a handful of leaders that particularly stood out to me during my early years that I thought, yeah, I really, I really rate how they operate. Mm. You go through ADFA and uh, the Royal Military College at Duntroon and you graduate as an engineer. Can you explain to people what an engineer does? Yeah, so basically we do construction and destruction would probably be the best way to put it. Hmm. So on the construction side, which is where I spent most of my time, you know, the soldiers in our troop were tradespeople. So, you know, literally construction sites, building things, uh, as well as horizontal construction, so roading and things. Hmm. And then I guess the field engineer side, explosives is part of that, bridging, boating, that sort of thing. So really mixed bag. What attracted you to that core? Or didn't you get a choice? (laughs) No, it was actually what you just said then, the mixed bag. Hmm. I thought it had a whole lot of variety. I liked that there was sort of a component where you needed to use your brain a little bit, that there was still a lot of kind of the adventure and the exciting side, but not quite the infantry. So yeah, I just thought it was the variety that really appealed to me. Hmm. And, you know, uh, one of the things about, I guess being a woman in the military, often there's a lot of criticism about sort of how the organisation has adapted its culture to support that. What was your experience as a woman, both in Australia and also in the New Zealand Army? So I guess that's a big question. For the most part, Martin, it was fabulous. So I never, you know, I didn't sort of spend my 10 years consciously being aware of the fact that I was a woman and that that might have been different. So for the most part, my experiences in the military as a woman, both in Australia and New Zealand, were, were incredible. Uh, they really were. But after I left, which we'll get to, I did a PhD around the experiences of women in the workforce, specifically the military, and I realized that perhaps not everything had always been quite as rosy as I'd let myself believe at the time. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's, that's true, isn't it? Well, everybody has a different experience, don't they, I guess, in their service? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your time in service, Ellen, took you to some a bunch of different places serving the New Zealand Army. Can you share with the audience a little bit about those places you went to? Yeah, sure. So I was really lucky. I spent more than seven of my 10 years outside of New Zealand, Australia, being a place where I spent a lot of time. But my main operational deployment was Afghanistan. So I had a fantastic seven months there. I was also really lucky. I spent almost a year on exchange in the UK as well as a couple of months in Antarctica and also all up quite a few months over a variety of different nations around the Pacific Islands. Yeah. So, yeah, very, very lucky. Yeah. So what was the Afghanistan experience like? What, tell me about that and what were the highlights and, you know, what did you observe about leadership in that operational environment? Yeah, so it was amazing. I was so lucky. So my job was the engineer officer, which meant that, we kind of had two parts to the engineer team. The first was that we maintained all the infrastructure for the Kiwi bases. That was both the main Kiwi base and the satellite bases around the region. So effectively facilities maintenance was our role. And then the other part, which got me far more excited, was the construction projects we did in the community. Mm. So things like working on local schools. We did some work at an orphanage. We did some roading repairs, that kind of thing. And I was, it was a wonderful experience. So I had five Kiwi soldiers in my team and they were, gosh, they were amazing guys. We also had 15 locals in our team. And really the team was the absolute highlight of my tour, getting to spend time not just with the Kiwi soldiers, but with these 15 amazing locals. Mm. Yeah, a real privileged 
part of the experience was was working with these amazing local people. So what did you do to help build that team, given that there was obviously some cultural differences? Yeah, so I guess, and one of the things I often talk about is is authenticity. I was just myself, Martin. So, you know, not everyone's going to love me. Not, I'm not going to be for everybody. But I was just myself, and I'm, I'm a pretty bubbly, energetic person. And, you know, it's, it can be infectious. Sometimes not everybody loves it. But I think it was really around trying to get the best out of the team. So the guys knew that, you know, I had their back. They could come to me with, with whatever challenges and issues they might have been having. Mm. And we just worked really hard mm. to kind of foster that teamwork, very much making it not about the locals and the Kiwis. It was mm. we are an engineer team. Yeah. And 21 of us, we will be a team and we will work together. Yeah. And what was the response from the uh, the Afghan locals? Yeah. So they, I mean, at the start, it's a bit unusual, right? First of all, it's a Kiwi boss, but it's a female, which is pretty, you know, women in Afghanistan typically aren't working. So that was quite a, I guess, an interesting experience for them. But I think when it comes down to it, people just want a leader who cares about them and who's competent. Honestly, they don't care what your gender is. They don't care what color you are. They don't care what your religion is. You know, and all of these things obviously were different to the people I was leading. They just care that, do you care about them and are you competent? And once I could demonstrate those two things, hmm. yeah, really there were no issues. The the team, I think, really enjoyed working with me. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, we often sort of hype these things up and it's important that we pay attention to cultural differences. But at the end of the day, it just it comes down to a couple of simple things, which is treating other people like human, building a connection. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of the biggest lessons from your time in service where you went, actually, that didn't go so well and I uh, wish I'd done that differently in hindsight? <laughs> I probably got a few. <laughs> you wouldn't be Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> <laughs> I've got lots of mistakes, Martin, but I think one of them would be back to that point around authenticity and being yourself. So I remember I often got a bit of flack from some of my leaders for the way that I was, which was sort of, I'm quite over the top, I'm quite bubbly, I'm quite friendly, and I would often get criticism from my managers for that. And there was one particular occasion where I really had been quite criticized for it and I took it to heart, and so I started trying to act on their advice, which was change who I was. And so it was a particular trip, we were in Tuvalu, and I absolutely shrunk, went into a shell and was not me. And you know what, Martin, I did a crap job. I really did not engage well with the soldiers for that trip. I didn't get the best out of them. I don't think I was particularly motivational. And that was my lesson is that I had a little go at being someone I wasn't. And that was a massive failure. I wish I just stuck to being myself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So you make the decision to leave the service after 10 years. What was the catalyst for that? So on the one hand, it was that I had effectively, I guess, achieved the goals that I wanted to. I wanted to deploy on operations. I wanted to lead soldiers. I had done that and I was kind of ready for a new challenge. The other side of it, Martin, is I was, by that stage, I was 28 when I left and I knew that I would like to have a family at some point. Uh, and for me, I didn't, that wasn't something that I wanted to do in the military. Hmm. What was behind that? Because that's, you know, sort of people have both, you know, there's two approaches, isn't there? One that's decide to make it work in what was important for you that said you know what actually I'm, I 
I need to have the family and I need to do it when I'm not in the army? I guess for me, it was around stability. So I really like having control of my own time and my location and where I'm going to be. So when I was in my 20s and, you know, for the most part, kind of single without dependents, being available at the drop of a hat was really exciting. And I love that, that, you know, I could be asked to go anywhere at any time. Mm. Whereas for me, I thought, well, when I have kids, I would not like to be in that position. I would like to have control over where it is that I live, yeah. what are the hours that I work, and I just didn't really see the military gelling with that. Yeah, sure. So the transition from service to a corporate career, what was that like? What were your choices there? How do you go about that transition? Yeah, so it was actually pretty smooth. My final posting in the army was with recruiting, and that was actually quite a nice bridge out because I was working with, firstly, not soldiers. So I had you know, quite a mix of staff, both all three services, but also civilian staff. And so it was kind of quite a corporate office type environment. So that was actually quite a good transition to leaving the military. The other thing is recruiting is quite a different task to say my normal engineering role. So that was also quite a good transition out. And I did, as I was leaving Martin, I did my MBA because I thought that I would need some help getting some qualifications that would be useful in the corporate sector. And so then I, yeah, I transferred out to a leadership role in a logistics company to start with. And it was actually a pretty, yeah, pretty smooth transition. I found it okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think it's, you know, that intentional decision preparation is so important in transition, isn't it? It's the, you know, you can't wake up one day and leave the next day. You've actually got to plan it. Absolutely. And it was sort of over a sort of 12 to 18 month period that I made the decision that, yes, I will be leaving. And so I kind of thought about, well, what do I need to do to upskill as I make that transition out? Hmm. So what was it like in that corporate role in a logistics company? What was floating your boat there? Maybe what didn't the military teach you that you needed to have in that job? Um, I, so it was a really neat experience. What I would say is the military, I was used to the fact that everything is very organized in the military and everything, uh, doesn't always happen like that outside of the military. So that was probably quite a good lesson for me. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is what I found interesting. I mentioned before that being bubbly and friendly was something that my bosses would sometimes criticize me for in the military. It was a really interesting experience then getting praised for that same thing outside of the military. And that was quite, I guess, a heartening experience from leaving. Mm. And those paths led you to then go into effectively consultancy on your own and the PhD. What's that been? What, tell me about the PhD. What was that about and why was that important to you? Yeah, so I did. Basically, I had done my MBA and the dissertation component basically martin i got a good mark at it and so i really naively thought oh maybe i'm capable of doing a phd i'd like to get myself one of those and it was purely about a personal challenge that i'd like to get that qualification and i thought okay what's a topic that i know a little bit about and can keep me interested for years and so i thought oh, i'll do experiences of women in the workforce the case study on the military I had no agenda behind it whatsoever, Martin. It was just that topic was the vehicle to get me the qualification. Mm. It was then when I did the research and asked women these questions about what was your experiences like? How did you find your leadership journey? Just like me, they all told me really wonderful things. So, you know, all the women I interviewed had a great time. But there was this recurring 
theme of a butt Martin where these kind of gender related challenges came out and it was a little bit disappointing actually to realize that oh as I mentioned earlier not everything had been quite as sunshine and rainbows as I had thought that it was when I was serving. Mm. So what, what conclusions did you come to in your PhD? Yeah, so there were sort of kind of eight recurring themes. I won't go through all of them, but some sort of basic ones that there weren't always uniforms and equipment designed for women's bodies. Mm. So that was sort of a pretty basic one. Recruiting material didn't always include women. And if it did, they were typically doing sedentary type roles. There was a big theme around this concept of authentic leadership, which I've kind of alluded to a little bit, where women often felt that they were uh, felt kind of pressured to be someone they were not. There was another big theme around the challenges of balancing work and family in the military. And then very unfortunately, and this won't be a surprise, there was quite a big theme around the topic of sexual harm. Mm. So they were sort of some of the big themes that came out of it. Mm. So at that point in my life, I was then working as a business consultant for another organisation, but I effectively moonlighted back to the New Zealand Army, working with the chief of the New Zealand Army and his senior leadership team, taking them through these findings, and then more importantly, providing recommendations for how they could uh, make some improvements. Yeah. And what was the response from the New Zealand Army leadership team? You know what, Martin? It was really wonderful. It was actually incredibly heartening. When I approached them and said, look, you know, Army, you know, I still love the organisation even though I'd left and I will, I will always love the organisation. I said, you know, I know that you are actively or publicly stating that you want more women but are not having success in achieving that. I think that these insights from my research might be useful. Would you like me to share them with you? And really, they absolutely gripped me up and said, of course, yes, please, we'd love to have this information. And, you know, the people that I worked with, which was, you know, some pretty high-ranking military members, as well as the chief of the army himself, General Boswell, I, yeah, have nothing but positive things to say about them. They were really, really keen to take these findings on board. They kind of felt something when I shared some of the experiences that were not so positive hmm. and they were really committed to wanting to do something about it. And I think that's really fantastic. Yeah. It's almost the case where if we've got a challenge in our organisation, it's just not a simple fix, is it? It's we actually do need to go deeper. We do need to engage the people maybe that are affected in a way that you know, creates that container of trust to be able to have a real conversation about it. Because there's often assumptions, isn't there, about these issues, whatever it might be. Oh, absolutely. And even, so just one particular theme, just as an example here. So sexual harm, that was one of the themes that came out of it. But it was often that the treatment of the woman following the event that was far more traumatic for them than the event itself in terms of the way that they were then treated, the backlash. And so when you talked about that word assumptions, sometimes there are assumptions made by managers as to how that situation should be dealt with without actually factoring in what the person who has received that harmful treatment might think is best for them. Yes. The other thing I'd say as well is that sharing kind of statistics is quite different to sharing stories. Hmm. I think people are far more willing and committed to making positive change when they've kind of felt something, which is quite different to just being given statistics and numbers. Mm. So that kind of lends itself to a little bit of thinking about where in decision-making do I need to have some sense of the emotion around it? 
What are your thoughts about that? Oh, say more, Martin, so I get that properly. <laughs> well, I guess when we're speaking then, I'm thinking there are, when we're dealing with certain issues, it's, it's almost an emotional connection to the issue to make a better decision. Yeah. And that wouldn't normally be the way in which we would think about decision-making that are, you know, I guess, process-orientated or whatever. But it occurs to me that when there are people involved, we probably need to be thinking at some element, we need to have an emotional lens around it in terms of what we're really trying to achieve rather than just making it transactional. Martin, I love that. And yes, so often, as you say, like we think our decisions should be really objective. We should take kind of emotions out of it and just think about things kind of black and white through an objective lens. Mm. But you're right, when it comes to people, actually, if you're going to do something that's right for your people, you need to care. And in order to care, you must have some kind of an emotional connection. Hmm. And that's kind of what I was alluding to. When I was presenting these findings to the chief of the army and his leadership team, I could see it on his face. And I genuinely love and respect General Boswell for this. You know, you could see on his face that he cared and that he had this emotional response, which wasn't enjoyable for him, about these negative experiences that some of the people in his organization were having. But it was that feeling that made him so much more driven to want to do something about it and want to make change, which I really don't think would have happened had it just been, yeah, some numbers and statistics. It's it's that feelings, the emotional connection that is mm. that's what motivates people to want to make positive change, right? Mm. It almost feels like it's a next level of emotional intelligence, really. That's where my head went. Yeah, I love that you say that because there's actually, sorry, uh, Brene Brown, who's a bit of a hero of mine she um oh yeah yeah she's pretty famous you I like that you like her too so she in fact it's not even her quote it's someone else's but she said it and she said there's all this neuroscience now that says we used to think that people were kind of thinking creatures who sometimes had some pesky feelings who got in the way but actually we know it's the complete opposite we are feelings-based creatures who sometimes do some thinking Hmm. so if we can get more emotionally intelligent and improve that quotient we can actually make far better decisions for people if we can improve our emotional intelligence. Yeah, I love that. Your research sort of thinking experiences led to now a consultancy and a whole bunch of different stuff, including speaking, facilitation, coaching, you know, working with organisations with a couple of campaigns. So tell me about what your consultancy is focused on right now, where you're doing the work, where you're getting that breakthrough. Yeah, so I'm um, right, really quite terrifyingly ambitious in terms of wanting to change the world, Martin, the working world. So one of the, the campaigns or the movements is this concept called hashtag work school hours, which I spoke about at TEDx in Auckland a couple of months ago. I'm still waiting for the video to come out. But it was sort of, it was based on my PhD research. And then I did some postdoctoral research about the experiences of parents. And what I found is that the experiences are are rubbish. You know, there's not a single person that I spoke with who said, yes, we've got this perfect balance when it comes to work and family. And so last year I was on parental leave. So I had, you know, kind of my day job as a consultant. I was on parental leave with my second child, marinating in this data, thinking, well, this is kind of rubbish because it's the future of my own life too. And I think it can be better. And so I thought, well, I think, if I'm going to pursue this, I'm going to have to start my own business. And so that's what I've done. I'm doing a consultancy business really focused in the space of leadership, 
but it's all around how do you do things differently to retain staff, which of course it's a massively big issue at the moment, staff retention. How do you look at improving productivity, staff well-being? And a lot of it's around how do you structure work differently? One of those things being hours, which again ties into this work school hours movement. How do we provide more flexibility, especially for parents, uh, but for everybody? Mm. And where are you getting the breakthrough there? Yes, yeah, sorry, I didn't answer that, did I? Um, so That's all right. A little bit of a mix. So I'm speaking to uh, kind of a number of different organisations, some corporate, some government, and I'll be honest with you, I haven't had many say, yes, we're totally ready to 100% sign up to work school hours, but I am having a lot of breakthrough with organisations wanting to make some progress along that spectrum. So with us saying, yeah, let's actually try and work school hours, say one day a week, or let's improve our flexibility policies. And there's not that many organisations that I've been into yet who have not wanted to go somewhere along this journey. Hmm. Yeah, so I think people are pretty open to it. For me, it seems like it's a capability and productivity issue at the end of the day. 100%. And this is where Mark and I get really excited because I'm pushing this because I've got a social agenda. So I've got this real passion that I want to make the work, the working world better and from a social perspective. Mm. But that doesn't mean crap unless there's a commercial agenda to it. And so that's actually how I go into organisations. It's exactly what you said. You want to improve productivity. You want to improve profits. This is how you can go about doing it. And so it's a real win-win. You improve social and commercial outcomes mm. simultaneously. Yeah. It's almost a family decision too, isn't it? I was uh, at a men's group just recently. We were talking about that balance between sort of work and pursuing things versus creating that family values and foundations. And and sort of we came to the conclusion, I think, that if you, if you are investing time outside of the home, you've got to weigh that up against what's the opportunity cost of that. What are you missing out on in the family? And and. If that becomes the norm over a long period of time, it almost disintegrates the family in terms of the family things that are meant to work. So it's actually a family, as much a family issue as it is the workplace issue, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. The only thing I'd, um, I guess, temper on that is I often find that employers sort of say, oh, well, you've decided to have children, so it's kind of your problem to figure that out. Right. Like it's an individual or the family units challenge. And I guess where I'm trying to push is that actually I think there's an organisational responsibility here sure. to look differently at the structures mm. to make it not so impossible for people to be in this position where they have to choose, well, do I prioritise my job or do, do I prioritise my family? Yeah. I think if we look at structuring work a little bit differently, people can actually have both. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost, I guess... Companies that are committing themselves to that almost are contributing to community well-being. Yeah, they absolutely are. And I'm mm. interviewing, so I'm sort of a forever researcher now, Martin. Not uh, not sort of by choice, it's just kind of happened. But, you know, I'm interviewing more and more organisations that have already been adopting work school hours type policies, you know, mm. completely independent of me. And when I interview them, they just talk about the huge community outcomes that they are having, just like you've indicated. But they also talk about how it's been so commercially smart for them. Mm. They're like, we've managed to access this massively underutilised sector of society, predominantly mums. Mm. They're able to get so many more gains with their business because their staff are really motivated. You know, there's just these wonderful both commercial and community outcomes. Yeah. 
So you have two children of your own now, having left in the army and looked for family stability. How do you make that work for you to work school hours? Yes, <laughs> I won't pretend it's easy all the time. It's not. You know, I basically finish my day at 2.30 to then go and collect my, you know, five-year-old who just started school this term. But I'm just being pretty hard-nosed about it. Hmm. You know, it doesn't mean I don't ever check an email in the evenings or, you know, never do anything. That, that's not what it is. But I don't set meetings after school hours. I'm really quite clear about that. Yes. And that's pretty much how I'm organising it. I, I literally run my business during school hours. Hmm. And uh, yeah, if someone wants a meeting at three o'clock, I say, well, I'm available at one o'clock. And Hmm. you know what? People don't even ask. No one even pushes back. It's just, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. It's almost, it's it's making a stand, isn't it? And saying, hey, this is the way I roll. Yeah. And the other thing when I'm, so when I think about, so I've got my own business, right? Where I'm trying to find clients, but when I'm then working with businesses and they're thinking about their clients, they often assume that their clients might have an issue with it. But I always say, well, have you actually tested that assumption? And when they actually have a conversation with their client, hey, would you be okay if I responded to this, say, the next morning as opposed to at four o'clock in the afternoon? And nine times out of 10, the client said, yeah, that's fine. I have kids too. Mm, That's right. They're just pleased that somebody else is going down the same track finally. Yeah, exactly. It kind of just takes some of the guilt away that all of us parents have. We always feel guilty. So if one of you stands up and almost be is a little bit brave and says, no, I'm not doing that because it's outside of school hours. The person on the other end is like, oh, oh, thanks. That's actually quite a relief for me too. (laughs) One of the fascinating things about this podcast has been meeting people who've obviously served in the military, but my observation is that many of them still have social purpose and, and want to serve the community or their country in some way. You actually brought both of those things together in the last couple of years, didn't you? in a volunteer mission back to Afghanistan. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) it was just over a year ago, and I mentioned at the start of this interview that I was so lucky that I had locals in my team when I was in Afghanistan. And so August 2021, as we all know, unfortunately, you know, Taliban took over in Afghanistan again. And one of the people in my team basically reached out begging me for help. He said, Alan, we're stuck here. Please, can you help us? And I said, I have absolutely no idea how to do that, but of course I will. You know, I'll do anything that I can. And it kind of, oh, Martin, it snowballed (laughs) to the kind of this sort of this biggest thing that I've ever been involved in. So for the last almost a year, have been volunteering 30 to 40 hours a week on this. You know, I talk about work school hours. I have not been working school hours. I've been working in the middle of the night, but this has been, you know, for a volunteer, important task. And yeah, basically over time, myself, along with a team and many other supporters, so it certainly wasn't just Ellen, you know, I was part of an amazing team with Martin Dransfield and Chris Parsons, plus others. We, yeah, basically worked through plan bit by bit, working and collaborating with our government. And we have now brought 563 people from Afghanistan to New Zealand. Mm. And does that involve going over to Afghanistan or into the Middle East itself? No, no. So we didn't we didn't go into country at all. Right. It's kind of a bit amusing, Martin. It was this operation where we were doing it via Zoom. Right. So literally we were working from home, doing this via phone, Zoom hmm. messages, using our various contacts around the world to 
yeah, logistically manage getting people across borders and doing so safely, because of course there's huge risk every time someone crosses the border, sorting out the paperwork that was required for them. It was quite a, really quite an administrative type exercise. But yeah, no, we didn't travel there. We did it we did it from our homes via Zoom. Wow. So it just shows you what you can achieve via remote working. Absolutely. So what an achievement. That's just amazing. And, you know, 563 people's lives impacted in a, such a positive way by that effort. Congratulations on that. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate that. It's, I think during the task, I sort of was so in the thick of it. And it was hard. You know, I've, I've got a, I know the audience can't see, but I've got a big smile on my face. But this was a tremendously hard, emotionally draining task. And, you know, the likelihood of success was extremely low. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really hard, but thankfully we've now finished and I'm sort of starting, I wrote a wee article kind of on the lessons learned from it, sort of leadership and teamwork lessons learned from this task, which was almost a bit of a cathartic experience. And so now we're kind of a couple of months on, I'm starting to, yeah, kind of breathe and look back and think that, yeah, maybe we were involved in something quite good, hopefully. Yeah. So what were some of those leadership lessons from that? Did you have a name for the activity, the evacuation of these Afghans? Did that? Uh, not really. I guess we just right. kind of referred to it as the Afghan evacuation task. Right. Okay. No, we didn't. We should have put them in that, actually. If you were back in the military, you would have given it some fancy title. Yeah, it would have had like a, yeah, op. Whatever. No, you know what? We never did that, Martin. We spent all this blooming time together and we never actually came up with a cool name. I think, oh, we should have done that. I think it's a good thing that you didn't so, come <laughs> well, Yeah, it was sort of interesting. So the, the leadership lessons, and there was kind of nine that I wrote out. I won't go through all of them, but one of them was around, no surprises to you, Martin, I'm a really uh, big believer in the power of diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so, and obviously kind of my expertise specifically is around the gender space, but our team, so there was four of us in the team. And as I said, it included Chris Parsons and Martin Dransfield and one other as well, who would like to keep his name out of it. But basically the four of us all had a military background, but other than that, we were actually really different. So we spanned three different generations in terms of age. We had gender diversity, our ethnicity, our religion. They're all kind of the, I guess, the obvious or the observable differences but our personalities were really different so we had quite a spectrum in terms of our approaches and also very different experiences in terms of our connections our ways of working and what we found is because this was such a complex task you know we were raising money from the public we were working with the media we were liaising with the government we were liaising with people the families themselves, with our networks overseas, just such a span of activity that I kind of talk about that the diversity was not just sort of this nice to have, it was essential. You know, there's no way we could have done this task with a bunch of Ellens. We needed that diversity to achieve it. But as we kind of know, diversity on its own means means nothing unless there's also inclusion. And that was something that was really powerful about our team is that we were so respectful of each other and you know gave each other space to bring our ideas out so that we felt comfortable to be our authentic selves and yeah always feel valued and included and that made it safe for us to bring out our diverse perspectives and yeah I really say that that was needed we all had to bring our a-game because this was such a 
blimmin' tricky task. And so the this kind of culture of inclusion allowed that to happen. So yeah, I think. Sorry, I go on about that's one of them. Listen, no, no, no. I really appreciate. It. I think one of the things that come up to me when you were talking there is the, and I've seen this uh, more and more recently is the fact that we should lead with inclusion. Diversity will come if we're inclusive, and. I was listening to uh, an Australian speaker, Michael Jay, and who has an ethnic sort of difference to others. And anyway, we share with the fact that you you don't always know when you're included, but you definitely know when you're not included. Yes. <laughs> so we actually need to lead with inclusion to make sure that people know that they're included rather than feeling like they're excluded. Martin, I, yeah, I really love that. And I think when I talked about this as leadership lessons from this task, we didn't kind of sit down and have some sort of intentional chat about how we were going to do things. It just kind of evolved. But yeah, we really did. There was this absolute inclusive outreach to each other and to people beyond us as well. You know, it wasn't, there were people beyond us that supported the team and it was always done in this really inclusive manner. So how do you bring people along the journey? How do you collaborate as opposed to how do you set up kind of barriers? Yeah. So I love that you say that inclusive, leading inclusively. Mm. Yeah. One of those lessons from that project of Afghan evacuation was never underestimate someone with a baby. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I love that you picked that one. So, and this is again, really near and dear to my heart and it kind of ties in with my research around women and parents, but I personally have experienced on a number of occasions what I'd call professional invisibility when I've been accompanied by one of my babies, as if you almost get allocated to the group of, you know, you're, you are just a mum and you're just a mum, you know, as if somehow that means you have a less capable brain or are less able in the work sphere. And I also think when people go on parental leave, this is regardless of mum or dad, it's often counted as sort of time out from work that doesn't count, almost like the, the clock stops and that's sort of your time out instead of valuing all these extra skills that people gain through being a parent, right? I mean, you know, you learn negotiation, you learn patience, selfless, time management, you know, all these different skills that are actually of huge value in the workplace. And I thought with this particular task, what was so real to me is that you know, at that, when I started, I had a four-year-old and an almost one-year-old. I was breastfeeding when I started this task. And, you know, I did several media interviews. I had interviews, uh, sorry, meetings with our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade while breastfeeding my baby because breastfeeding Monty was kind of the only way to keep him calm. And I was sort of juggling my four-year-old at the same time. And it just made me think, yeah, don't ever underestimate the capability of someone with children. And what I would also say, another lesson in that, kind of article was around the power of caring mm. and I think it's because I was a mum and because I had my own two little kids that actually made me care even more for these Afghan families which of course included their wives and their children and it was that parental connection that actually made me care more and therefore and all four of us in our team appearance I think that actually added to our ability to care and to conduct this task so yeah yeah I'm very big on that to never underestimate people with little kids yeah yeah one of my go-to quotes is Theodore Roosevelt the fact that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care um, so that fits absolutely with all that oh I love that Martin can you say that again 
So Theodore Roosevelt quote, which I which was a bit of a turning point for me, became my mantra as a you know in the Navy was, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Oh, I really like that. Hmm. Oh, oh, Martin, that's it's, it's in the public domain. Go go use it. <laughs> well, I'm going to. And I love that because. You know, I talked about caring just now, and clearly you did as well. And in fact, when I said at the very start, I think people that you are leading, what they are interested in their leader is, does that leader care about them? Hmm. And are they competent? Yes. And it was interesting. One of the things that came out of my PhD research was that often, and I was only interviewing women, but I imagine there'll be some men who experience this as well. We often got told that we care too much as if that was a problem. And I want to flip it and say, actually, Leaders that care, that's that's what you want. Because mm. when you care about something, you'll work hard and you'll achieve it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think to tell someone they care too much is, is a problem. Yeah, I agree. Helen, we could probably talk for a lot longer. We're probably out of time today. Maybe there'll be a chance to come back sometime soon again. And certainly if you're here in Australia, it would be great to catch up. Likewise, if I'm in New Zealand, I would definitely make the effort to try and find you. I wanted to finish up with the rapid-fire questions it's possible you may have answered these somewhere already, but as I say to people, it's, and this will help you, is that they're rapid-fire questions, but not always rapid-fire answers. Okay. <laughs> so fill in the blank. Leadership is blank. Exciting. Awesome. What's your go-to book on leadership, if you have one, or many? Oh, I like good to great. Yeah, excellent. I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known that my superpower was being myself much earlier in my career. Oh, how good is that? That is awesome. I love that. <laughs> you get a call from a team member, a crisis has just erupted in your company organisation. What are your first words to that person? How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Cool. And lastly, the go-to quote on leadership that has had the most influence on your leadership or how you approach life. Oh, gosh, I can't think of one to mind. But I tell you what, Martin, the one that you just shared from Theodore Roosevelt, that's that's a good one. I think um, yep. obviously I've only just heard it today, but it almost resonated with so many things I'd thought about over the years. Yeah. And so when you just said it, I was like, oh, I like that. Yeah. 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 So that's I'm going to take that forward as a go-to quote. Well, it certainly has come out in our conversation today, the fact that you are somebody that cares, you're passionate you bring that energy and I love the fact that, that you are yourself because this interview has been amazing because you've been yourself. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Martin. I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Ellen Nelson, thanks so much for being on the podcast. We look forward to catching up with you sometime real soon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.